This is the podcast where you can listen to my award-winning audiobook, But He Spit in My Coffee. I'm Carrie Williams, the author. Cindy Peller is our reader. 19. Shrieks stab like ice picks into my eardrums. Glancing between the cell phone on my lap and the road, I feel a surge of triumph when my call connects to Delano's cell phone, unbeknownst to Devin. Mom! Amaya's garbles out holding his hands over his mouth. He's blowing snot bubbles! I scrounge around on the floor for a plastic shopping bag, afraid Amias, who is grossed out easily like me, is going to vomit. My eyes catch sight of Devin in the rearview mirror, with snot ballooning like a semi-transparent marble from one of his nostrils. I dry heave. I struggle to catch my breath as my throat constricts. Kayla... Give Amias your goldfish bag. I glance over my shoulder in quick bursts, trying to watch the road. Kayla's hand is in the goldfish bag, and she shakes her head. No. Amias gags, and Devin's shrieks curdle into peals of high-pitched laughter. Not noticing a red light until the last minute I slam on my brakes, Devin smacks into the back of the front passenger seat. Stop trying to kill me. You're trying to kill me, he shrills in mounting hysteria. I told you to put your seatbelt back on, I holler. Not five minutes ago, Devin was trying to climb out of the window. I'd had to pull over to set the child safety locks on the doors and windows and force him to buckle his seatbelt. He was out of his seatbelt again as soon as I started driving. And he'll just keep unbuckling. I'm out of options. I have to get home. Devin flings himself first against the driver's side of the minivan, then the passenger side. He raises his fist in a threat, and Brandon shrinks back into his booster seat, his teary eyes pleading with me through the rearview mirror. Watching Amias, Kayla, and Brandon squeeze together in the back seat, like bunnies trapped in a cage with a rabid animal, fury fills me and spews out, How dare you act like this? How dare you? Devin lays on the seat and, with his legs in the air, kicks my headrest. My body jolts forward with my chair. Finally, I slam to a stop in the garage. Rounding the minivan, I open the sliding door and wedge my body into the middle seat to cage Devin so the other kids can squeeze past. His sharp nails dig into my arms and neck as he tries to climb around and over me. I call after the kids, "'Lock yourselves in my bedroom!' thinking at least that way they'll have access to a bathroom. Devin, moments ago desperate to get out of the vehicle, now anchors his feet against the side of the door. He holds the armrest as if in a death grip. Frustrated tears stream down my face as I wrangle him. He screams and kicks. He's maybe 70 pounds, but his frenzied fighting makes it difficult to hold on to him. I half carry, half drag him into the house and drop him onto the living room floor, none too gently. I get in his face. Sit. Just sit. All I have is my greater physical strength and the power of fear. Maybe if I yell louder than he does, he'll be scared enough to stop. My pulse thrashes. I'm certain I'm on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Hope sparks when I remember my phone. I hurry back into the garage and find my cell phone where it has slid under the brake pedal. My connection with Delano has dropped. I call him back. Out of breath, I ask, 
Do you see how bad he is now? He chucks his tongue. I turned off the phone. You did what? I hiss. I'm almost home anyway. Why do you make him go on like that? Furious, I jab the end call button and go back inside. Devin hasn't moved. He wails, but with no words and no tears. My fingers shake. I can't think straight over the unrelenting noise he's making as I try to make a pot of coffee. I spill the grinds and they scuttle across the counter and floor. I grip the edge of the sink. The urge to clobber Devon is so strong that I'm barely maintaining control. Then I hear the garage door rumble open, and just like that, the only evidence of Devon's tantrum is his sweaty face. I look at him in disbelief. Delano walks in and sees the spilled coffee grinds. Come on, come, sweep the floor, he barks. Devin gives me a smirking look and runs for the broom. Defeated, I go upstairs to the shower, the only place where I can have any privacy. The water is steaming hot and I heave choking sobs until I can't breathe. After the water begins to cool, I get out and wipe the fog off of the mirror. I lean forward and rest my forehead against it. The face that stares back at me from the mirror has blotchy skin and eyelids that are swollen into fat cushions. The narrow slits of my eyes are so dramatic that they don't look real. I have a fleeting hope that Delano will see them and understand my distress. But he won't. He doesn't believe me. No one believes me. No one believes me because my life is like a bad movie with an over-the-top script. I'd be the first to say this could never happen in real life. But it is. A few weeks ago, I made the mistake of telling Devin's teacher how unbearable his behavior has become at home. I knew from the look on her face she thought I was exaggerating. I wasn't. My sanity revolves around the school schedule. I count down the minutes until I can drop him off in the morning and then watch in trepidation as the clock careens toward 3.45. But I didn't tell her that. I did tell her about Devin's tantrums lasting hours. No, literally hours, I'd assured her. She'd cocked her head, whether in curiosity or accusation, I wasn't sure. Is there anything going on at home? Yes. Yes, there is. I'm losing my mind. Twenty. I'm glad you called the police, Devin calls between hiccups of laughter. I'm going to tell on you. You're a bad mother. They'll take you to jail. Right about now, that's not sounding so bad. I watch the street from between the blind slats. They're furry with dust. My laptop sits untouched on my desk, and work is piling up in my virtual inbox. When the officer arrives, I open the door before he has time to ring the bell or knock. As his boots clomp down the hallway, I'm acutely aware of the damning silence around me. Where is the screaming child? Where is the whirling tornado of books and toys? Feeling like a fool, I insist that Devin has been completely out of control. 
He was chasing his brothers and sister with a baseball bat. They were terrified. I had to send them next door to my sister's house. How old is he? He's eight. The officer looks at me like I'm one of those crazy people who calls the police when McDonald's runs out of chicken nuggets. Ma'am, since he's only eight, there isn't much we can do. He can't seem to wrap his mind around a parent who has called 911 for this and turns toward the door. My desperation clutches after him. What Devin needs is a talking to by a big, stern police officer. Please, can you at least talk to him? I plead. The officer agrees and follows me back to the living room. With some effort, he gently coaxes Devin out from behind the couch by assuring him that he's safe now. He's safe now? I look on, devastated by the direction this is going in. The officer soothes. You need to listen to your mom, buddy. Devin looks at him with syrupy eyes and a trembling upper lip. The officer pats him on the back and stands to leave. Can I count on you to help your mama pick up this mess? Devin hurries to obediently begin cleaning up the toys scattered across the floor. As I stand at the window watching the police cruiser disappear down the street, the tendrils of Devin's laughter string through the air and tighten like a noose around my throat. Later that evening, while I cook dinner, I tell Delana what happened with the police officer. The gas stove has left its black fingerprints caked up the sides of the dull aluminum pressure cooker, and it rocks and shrieks on the burner as we talk. Why didn't you make the man take him shoes off? Delano huffs. You made him track dirt all over the house. I flip the release button on the pressure cooker and steam hisses out. But my safety release lever snapped off long ago. I storm from the kitchen. I am living a nightmare. It's bad enough that Delano won't help me. He doesn't have to make it harder. I jam the kids' shorts, shirts, and socks into plastic grocery store bags. From the bathroom, I grab our toothbrushes, my contact lens case, and saline. I snatch up my work laptop and shove it into the case. Medications, cell phone charger, purse. What am I forgetting? Nothing I can't pick up at Walmart. As I pass by the living room, I glance at Delano. He's lying on the couch with one arm flung over his eyes. He wants me to think he's asleep, but I know he's not. Go get in the van, I tell the kids, loudly enough for Delano to hear. He doesn't open his eyes or act as though he cares. Driving aimlessly, I circle my problems. I can't go on living like this. I'm barely making it through each day, and I can't handle the added pressure that Delano heaps on me as if this is all my fault. As if I can control Devin, but won't. As if this is by choice. I pull through a Chick-fil-A drive through and hand out waffle fries and chicken nuggets. Waiting in the Dunkin' Donuts drive through I call my mother. Her voice crackles through the bad signal. I'd love for you to come visit, but are you on your way now, she asks. I need a break. Honey, did you forget that I'm on vacation in Maine? Oh, I say, my chest beginning to cave in on itself in despair. You can come here, she adds hurriedly. 
I'm staying in a cottage by the beach. The kids would love to play in the ocean with Kobe. Is there enough room for us? I'll make room. Just come. Some 16 hours later, we wind our way along a narrow dirt road. With a steady supply of DVDs, the kids have all done well. We pass quaint cottages set back from the road before reaching a mailbox with the right street number. My eyes burn. Shivering from way too much caffeine and no sleep, I pull in and turn off the engine. Mom rushes out and the screen door of the breezeway slaps closed behind her and her big dog, Kobe. Mom squeezes the kids into hugs and the dog jumps on them, almost knocking them over. Sam picks a red frisbee up off of the gravel driveway and sends it sailing through the air. The kids and Kobe race to fetch it. Mom hugs me and prickles race along my arms. Being touched makes me want to slough off my skin. Have I always been like this? I don't think so, but I can't pinpoint when it started. I concentrate trying not to pull away because I don't want to hurt her feelings. Why don't you go take a nap, Mom says, leading me toward the cottage. I'll take the kids to the beach. I'm sure they're sick and tired of riding. I fall in and out of sleep, restless and haunted by my fear of becoming trapped in the coffin of sleep paralysis. Hours later, when voices float up the stairs, I drag myself fully awake. I trudge downstairs, taking in the cottage, the walls are nothing more than studs open to the exterior clapboarding. The cross rails are makeshift shelves, crowded with beach glass, shells, and an assortment of ceramic lighthouses. The kids are at the table and Mom is serving hot dogs, baked potato chips, and corn on the cob for dinner. My stomach turns at the smell. Honey, do you want some supper? Mom asks. I feel sick. I flop into a worn blue-striped chair. Did you take some medicine? Migraine pills. Don't touch that, sweetie, Mom says and guides Amias's hand away from a shiny white seashell. Grammy is renting this place. If we break anything, I'll have to pay for it. The kids finish eating and go back outside to play with Kobe and to swing in the hammock. Mom washes the dishes, then goes outside with them. Later, when mosquitoes chase the kids inside for showers, I set up an assembly line of sorts. Watch TV while waiting your turn. Shower, brush your teeth, go upstairs to read in bed with Grammy. It's always easiest to go by age, since any arbitrary order will surely cause bickering. After Brandon showers, I send him scurrying upstairs to my mom. Kayla needs my help washing sand out of her hair. Her curls spring out wildly, and I start to comb out the knots, but she's anxious to get upstairs, so I only make a half-hearted attempt. Your turn, Amias, I say. He and Devin are glued to the boxy TV that squats in a corner of the room. Its rabbit ears and fuzzy black and white screen are a novelty to them. Amias, I call more firmly. He distractedly takes the towel from my hand. The bathroom door clicks closed, and I go to the kitchen for coffee. My mom only drinks decaf, but when she learned we were coming, she bought me real coffee and half and half. When I return to the living room, Devin is fingering a large seashell. Remember what Grammy said? No touching. 
he places the shell back on its perch and circles the room looking at the other knickknacks. I sit in the striped chair and try to relax. Devon strokes a glass mermaid. Use your eyes only. I mimic my mom's earlier admonitions and tone. Devon slowly circles the room again, looking at the trove of treasures. His hand snakes out like lightning and grabs a ceramic lighthouse. He raises it above his head, his eyes a challenge. I jump up and hot coffee splashes across my legs. Put that down, I order. He narrows his eyes and shakes his head. As I move toward him, he stumbles backwards over the ottoman but stays on his feet. I'm gonna break it, he taunts. 21. In one quick motion, I grab Devin's wrist and pry the lighthouse from his fingers. He thrashes and grunts as I wrangle him onto a kitchen chair, but he springs back up from the seat. I grab at his shirt. There's a gasp. I look up. Mom is standing halfway down the stairs with one hand over her mouth. What's going on? He's trying to break that. I motion with my chin toward the lighthouse. Devin howls and kicks his legs, and I struggle to contain him, taking blows to my arms and chest. I can't handle this, Mom says tearily. He's just a little boy. I can't. Devin stills beneath my hands, and tears begin to trickle down his face. I look at him. How has he managed to summon tears? What do you want me to do? I demand. Let him break everything? I, I don't know, but I can't do this. It's too much. Mom turns and rushes back up the stairs. No doubt happy that my mom has taken his side and not wanting to lose the upper hand, Devin saunters into the bathroom to shower. Later, lying in the darkness, I swat at mosquitoes. I'm sardined between Brandon and Kayla, but feel utterly alone. There's no way that I can control Devin here. If he did this on our first day, it's only going to get worse. Kayla stirs next to me. It's hot, she moans. I adjust the rotating fan her way. She flops around and I whisper, not wanting to wake the boys. Do you want me to tell you a story? I feel the motion of her nodding. Once upon a time, I was sad because I didn't have a little girl of my own, only boys. Then I found out that I was pregnant with you. Kayla giggles. That's not true. Who says it has to be true? This is my story. I smooth her hair away from her sweaty face. You ordered me to eat lots of chocolate, and you told me what movies to go see. Miss Bossy Bossy, then one day you decided you were ready to come out. Out you came, and your hair went poof. It did not, she whispers, and pets my cheek affectionately. The next day I sit on a large boulder hiding behind my sunglasses while the kids play in the salty waves and collect seashells with my mom. I watch for signs of the tide turning but only see white-capped waves breaking over and over against the jagged, rocky shore. After dinner, I load up our things and set my GPS for home.
22. Dice crash against the clear plastic lid of the boggle tray as Amaya shakes it far more robustly than necessary. He sets it down and shoves his wire-rimmed glasses up with one finger. At this point, they're irreparably twisted, because he's all in on everything he does, especially hurling himself headlong across the soccer goal. I hand out a lunch of cereal, apple slices, and cookies. Devin flips the timer. Our usual rules apply. Only words three letters or more count, except for Kayla, who can make one- and two-letter words. Each word is one point. I try to get Brandon to eat his cereal, but he wrinkles his face. It's yummy, I say, putting the spoonful in my own mouth. I really need to make time to start cooking again. Lately, I'm doing a terrible job feeding the kids healthy food. Time's up. Pencils down. Pencils down. Amaya's hollers. I'll go first, he announces. Cat. Devin slashes the word off of his list. Not fair. His voice scrapes across my skin. Cats, Amias continues. No one else has that one. The. Uh. Devin wails and my skin crawls. After Amias finishes, Kayla reads her words. I, A, N, it. They tally up their points and Amias has won. I snatch an apple slice from his plate and pop it in my mouth. It's tart and crunchy. Take a break now and eat your lunch. See, Amias tells Kayla, Mom eats after Brandon and me. She eats after me, too, Kayla insists. I eat after all of you. Not Devin, Amias whispers loudly to Kayla. Shush, I tell him. Devin hangs his head, and I summon my very best maternal instincts. Of course I eat after Devin, too. I walk up behind him. Panic grips my throat like it might strangle me. He's already eaten his apple and cookie. I stare at his bowl of cornflakes, and my stomach turns inside out. With four sets of eyes looking at me expectantly, I paste on a smile. As if in slow motion, I reach for Devin's spoon and scoop up some of his cereal. All I can see is the shine on his upper lip. I lift his spoon to my mouth and my stomach lurches. I put it into my mouth anyway. My throat shrinks to a pinhole, but I force myself to swallow. See, I say, swallowing down an involuntary gag. My hand flutters to my mouth. I walk as casually as I can towards the bathroom. 23. I startled awake. Without my contact lenses, everything is an inky blur. Feral eyes loom up and over me, mere inches from my face. I gasp. Devin jumps back. I, I need to use a bathroom, he stammers, then scuttles back out of my bedroom. I sit, pant. My heart jerks in my chest. Feeling lightheaded and beginning to hyperventilate, I grope to switch on the light. There's the creak of Devin's bed frame, then only the booming silence of my own pulse. Why was he standing over me like that? How long was he there? 
Every scary suspense novel I've ever read spins through my mind. I don't dare close my eyes. Don't dare even blink until morning. 24. It's a gloomy day, and clouds hide any sunlight that might otherwise evaporate the dread that settled over me. Popping four extra-strength Tylenol with lukewarm coffee, I don't have the energy to microwave. I slump at my desk, unable to concentrate and work. Why was Devin in my bedroom? What if I hadn't woken up? Devin is so angry, hates me so much. What if he had gone for the baseball bat while I was asleep? I shake my head. But it's as if my brain isn't working right anymore. I can't make sense of anything. I know I'm being irrational, but I can't free myself from this paranoia. Why didn't I change the boggle rules? Why didn't I tell them all words counted with no canceling when two players found the same one? That would have been so simple. Had I been happy when Devin lost the game? I watched despondently as large drops of rain slide like tears down the windows. It's not the sort of thing you tell anyone, not even yourself. And awareness sinks into my gut like wet cement. Desperate for sleep, I secure a pressure-mounted baby gate loosely in Devin's bedroom doorframe. How has my life come to this? In the weeks since I woke up to find Devin standing over me, I've barely slept. I'm afraid of a child not even half my size. Satisfied with my jerry-rigged alarm, I say goodnight. It takes only a few minutes. Predictably, Devin calls, I gotta go poopy. Sure you do. I trudge upstairs to take down the gate. Devin dilly-dallies in the bathroom, making me wait. After getting him back into bed and resetting the baby gate in his doorway, I settle back in downstairs with my laptop and watch the news. Brandon curls beneath a blanket beside me. About an hour later, I hear the gate clatter onto the hardwood floor in the hall. It wasn't me. I promise I didn't get out of bed, Devin shouts. I get a few semi-restful nights of sleep before Devin figures out how to move from his bed to the door, scale the frame, and jump out. Delighted, he shows Amias and Kayla his new trick. They tell me about it in hushed whispers. They're scared of him wandering the house while we sleep, too, and the fear edging their voices spurs awake my inner dragon. I call a family meeting sans Delano, Skewering Devon with my eyes, I say, Amias and Kayla, you have my permission to punch Devon in the face as hard as you can if he tries to hurt you, or if he tries to hurt Brandon. You won't get in trouble for self-defense. Devon's eyes bug out at me. That's right. You better think twice about going after them, I say with exactly zero sympathy. I tuck the kids into bed with kisses on the foreheads, secure Devon's gate, and collapse onto my bed still fully clothed. In the murky place between sleep and waking, I watch Devon climb onto the half wall at the top of the stairwell. A grin contorts his face as he stabs an accusing finger at me.
He taunts me, threatens to jump. I sigh wearily, giving up. If that's what you want to do, jump. His socked foot slips, and he falls in slow motion. The sickening crack of his body on the ceramic tile snaps me awake. I lay in bed, tears blurring the ceiling fan from view. This isn't how adoption is supposed to be. I'm supposed to love my son, but I don't even like him. The absolute certainty that God will now punish me by taking one of my other kids from me swallows me like a body bag. I begin to neurotically check and recheck bicycle helmets and seatbelts. When the kids are with Becky, I call and ask, Are they at your house? Are you sure? Send me a picture. When they take the bus, I call the school to make sure that they make it safely into their classrooms. Eventually, I start driving them myself every single day to be sure. Dread balls in the pit of my stomach, and I'm nearly paralyzed with fear. If you'd like more information about reactive attachment disorder, please check out the show notes. Join me for the next episode to find out what happens next.